0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. CTL, chronic training load. This metric has rapidly gained in popularity among endurance athletes, but how well understood is this complex metric? Today, we discuss the benefits of CTL as well as the issues that can arise if too much stock is placed in this one number. CTL can tell you the general level you're at, and more importantly, it can indicate trends in your training and help direct your training plan. But is this little acronym quickly replacing that other acronym, FTP, as the metric of reference? Indeed, many people seem to think of it as an indication of how strong they are. They place all of their stock in this one metric. But should they? Are there any dangers to doing so? As always, today, we start by taking a step back and defining how CTL is calculated and what assumptions and estimates it is based on. Today, Trevor and I discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of CTL. Ultimately, we want to try and answer as many of the questions we've received about this metric as possible and help illustrate why a focus on training principles, rather than any single number, is much more effective for creating adaptations and seeing gains. As we always do on our summary episodes, today we'll hear from a world-class group of coaches, scientists, and athletes, including Tim Cusick, Larry Warbis, Joe Friel, Dr. Steven Seiler, Dr. San Milan, Kendra Wenzel, and others. Let's make it fast.
1: In all of sports, nutrition is one of the most confusing and controversial topics. That's because everyone has an opinion and it's hard to tell fact from fad. Plus, what works for one person may not work for you. Now Fast Talk Laboratories is shedding some light on the science of sports nutrition. In our new Sports Nutrition Pathway, we take a deep dive into the science and practice of sports nutrition to help you find what works for you. This pathway features experts like Dr. Asker Yukendrup, Dr. Brian Carson, Dr. Tim Noakes, Dr. John Hawley, Julie Young, and Ryan kohler They create a science-based framework that will show you how to think about sports nutrition in a new way. Our Sports Nutrition Pathway is the only guide you need to this complex topic. See more at fasttalklabs.com pathways.
0: Trevor, uh, I know you have a lot of thoughts here. Tell me a little bit more about uh, where you want to take this episode and this discussion on CTL.
1: I'm, I'm going to kind of give away the ending of the episode first. This is a, a summary episode, after all. And that's, there is a value to CTL, but I don't think the value is in you know, this, the same sort of thing you saw with FTP, where it's the higher the number, the better, and i got to drive my number up. And we have gotten questions from listeners being concerned about an injury or taking a little time off because their CTL is going to tank and then they're not going to be at the same level. So you can see them using that as the, you know, here's the measure of me as an, as a athlete, uh, in total. Uh, what really kind of opened my eyes is I have an athlete I'm coaching who went out on a, w- with a group on a ride. And this was a group that used to, to drop him a lot. And all of a sudden he was beating them up. And at the end of it, you know, I think three, four years ago, they immediately would have gone, what's your FTP, man? You're doing great. Uh, instead, they just came up and were like, wow, you're really strong. What's your CTL? Mm-hmm. And they were guessing his CTL was like 110, 120. And when he told them his CTL was 70, they wouldn't believe him.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it is that number of reference now amongst amateur riders, I think, uh, predominantly, that People equate that number with how well you're riding a bike, and it just doesn't work. It's not that simple, um, and it doesn't work that way for everyone, and there's a lot more nuance to it than that.
1: I I think it's going to sound like we're beating up on CTL in this episode. We're not doing that. It's a useful metric. We'll hear later in the episode from Tim Cusick, who's the developer of WKO5, which they, they are the people who... Uh, along with Dr. Coggins and and Hunter Allen developed this concept of of CTL for cyclists. And you'll hear him say, you know, CTL has a lot of value, especially for a coach. Using it as a measure of yourself is not that value. And that's where we're going to get negative is looking at that number and saying, oh, I'm 110. I used to be 100. I'm a stronger cyclist now.
0: We often will start an episode defining the terms we're talking about, and I think it's very appropriate in this instance to do the same, because this, again, one of those metrics that has become popular, people tend to take some of the um, complexity out of these things, and I think we should start from the very beginning and really dive into the true definition of CTL so it's very clear what this is actually is a measure of.
1: And I get to start by saying it's actually going to take us a while to get to the definition of CTL because it is built on so many things. And I think it's really important to understand all those things that it's built on to understand the nature of CTL itself uh, to get at the, what that number is about. So where I'm going to start is it's, CTL stands for chronic training load. I'm going to give a definition of load. And I'm not going to give my own definition. I actually am looking at a study uh, from 2014 called Establishing the Criterion Validity and Reliability of Common Methods for Quantifying Training Load. And they have a definition of load that when you hear it, you're going to go, well, that's actually really, really simple. Uh, It is physical training load can be described as the dose of training completed by an athlete during an exercise bout. So that's very acute load. That's a single ride. Chronic training load, hence the chronic, refers to the accumulation of that load over time.
0: It does seem very simple.
1: Right. That's it. It's just how much did you put on your your body? Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. It can mean how much did you put on your body uh, over the course of that workout. So this is where you get into, and again, I'm going to use their definitions. There's external load and internal load. So external load uh, is a they define as a measure of training load independent of individual internal characteristics. In short, on the bike, that's power. How much power is going into the bike? Mm
2: -hmm. So if
1: you're putting 300 watts into the bike, it doesn't say you know if you're a pro putting in 300 watts, not too hard. Uh, If you're a new cyclist, 300 watts, you might survive there for a couple seconds. It doesn't say anything about how much is that 300 watts beating you up. It's just saying you're putting 300 watts into the bike. Mm -hmm. Internal load is the relative physiological stress imposed on the athlete. So this now gets into the, are you dying at 300 watts or are you going fairly easy at 300 watts? So... Another way to think about this is we, we actually had Tim on the show, and so again, you're going to hear this in the quote from him, and, and I was going to use this later, but maybe we should use this right now. Uh, it'll give away a little bit, but I think there's a good place to use it. We did an episode with, with Tim where he talked about stress versus strain, so that's getting at that internal and external load, and his key point was stress is what's going into the bike. That's the external load strain is what's going into your body. And the really important point that he made, which we will get to again later, is stress says nothing about adaptation.
3: Well, personally I think both the acute and chronic training acute and chronic training load measurement is crucial to all your successful training strategies. It's something that has to be part of it. Remember, I'm talking about measuring training load at the moment. I know we're going to get deeper into some definitions. But to answer that question, right for me, I always want to start with one overarching goal. As we've brought more and more data to endurance coaching, to being an endurance athlete, you have to understand what is the role of data? What is the role of data science, right? You look at a bunch of data and that, now you're a data scientist because you got power, you got heart rate, you got all these things. So now you're a data scientist. People think that all this data and the data science we apply is meant to give us some definitive answer. Oh, go train for 56 minutes at, at 282 watts, right? That's not what it really is. Data science is decision science. So you're collecting all this data so that you, the person making the decision, has more knowledge and you improve the odds of this success of the decisions you make. In this particular case, we're talking about athlete success, their ability to achieve their goal, you know, to be on peak form when they want to be on peak form to, to win their big race, whatever that might be. But you're really talking about data. All this measurement of training load and other factors that are involved in that—it's not a magic answer. There's no one. Well, I opened a can of data, and what popped out, like you know, uh, springborn snakes, were you know, magic answers of what I should do. What happens when you look at all the data? It makes you more knowledgeable, and it allows you to make better decisions, which increase the odds of success. You know, when you apply exercise stimuli to an athlete. The response, you know, physiology isn't this neat linear thing, right? Responses can be different, sometimes predictable, sometimes not, right? So all you're doing is using all this data to make better decisions to improve the odds of success. So therefore, when you're talking about training load, remember my definitions had measurement and quantitative within there. You're talking about the ability to use this measurement of training load to improve your odds of success. So that's always my overarching thing with all data, something that all data should be utilized. When you start talking about training load specifically, you really are talking about the measurement of training stress and the prediction of the resulting strain and adaptation. So really when you think about the most quantitative training load metrics or measurements that are out there They are a stress measurement because we can best and most easily understand that stress. I have a power meter. I'm doing 300 watts. I get it. I get that's 300 watts. That's the stress I'm putting. I have a hard number that's very trackable. When you get to strain, we don't have a great system of the measurement of strain right now. It isn't out there. You have heart rate. You have HRV. You have some other factors, but no matter what, You're still somewhat in the dark of the true strain the athlete is going under. We're getting better at that. We're rounding out information and data there more and more. The trouble that brings with training load, the challenge and where the art of coaching, using data to make better decisions is important, is we can measure the stress pretty quantitatively, like there's an objective set of data. And we're starting to get our hands around strain a little bit better. But reality is we don't have like that hard quantitative piece of data. Therefore, if stress plus strain equals adaptation, we really can't nail adaptation. So when you start thinking about training load, we're really trying to improve the odds by understanding what we're applying. We're applying a certain amount of stress. That stress is going to have some relationship to fitness, some relationship to performance specificity, some relationship to uh, how the athlete performs in a given event, right? But we don't have that same hard measurement for strain. And we really, when you think about the adaptation, we're best guessed, aren't we? We don't have that way of, of predicting the adaptation. Now, the athlete goes to their event and does well. You said, you know, your thumbs up. You did a great job of measuring stress and strain
0: all right so that's load but we're talking ctl chronic training load it's a little bit more complex let's get into that now so
1: the first challenge you have with chronic training load is what we are talking about in terms of that stress versus strain chronic training load is based on power power is an external measure it says nothing about what's going on in your body it says nothing about adaptations But that's actually, so chronic training load is part of your performance management chart. That chart is trying to show something about how you're adapting, how your body's feeling. So it seems a little odd to say we're going to use an external measure that shows nothing about your body and use it to show what's going on with your body. So they had to do a few things. So this is, again, Hunter Allen and Dr. Andy Coggin who came up with these concepts to essentially turn power into an internal measure. So the first thing they had to do to get to chronic training low was not use straight power but normalize power. Now, we've talked about this before on the show, but normalized power basically what you do is the the data is smooth. Uh, using a 30-second moving average, and that's based on the fact that physiological response, when you're looking at heart rate VO2, tends to have about a 30-second delay in response. So that's trying to make power a little more physiological. Uh, Then you raise it to the fourth power, uh, which is, so I'm, I'm reading this here, from a regression of blood lactate concentration against exercise intensity. The transformed values are averaged and the fourth root taken yielding a normalized power. So that's a lot of kind of mathematical complexity. The short of it is it's trying to take power and turn it into something physiological. So normalized power, and this is really important because people don't understand this. And you hear people all the time talking about, well, my normalized power for the ride was X because it's, you know, let's face it, normalized power is always high, higher than average power. People want to use the bigger numbers. So they go, "Well oh, look, look how, how hard I was going. My, this Here's my normalized power. You're not using it accurately. Normalized power takes power and turns it into an internal measure. So it's not what was going into the bike. that's average power. It is how hard did it feel to your body? That's normalized power. So if you go up a hill and then come down the other side and don't pedal, your average power is going to be low. But boy, that, that hill is really hard. So your normalized power is going to be a lot higher because it felt a lot harder to you. But that's not saying you went harder. So just to make this really clear, if you have two cyclists side by side going up a hill, they weigh the exact same amount. And you want to know who went harder up that hill? or who went faster up the hill, you look at average power. person putting out the average power probably went up faster. Normalized power doesn't tell you that. Normalized power tells you, so if one person had a higher normalized power, that tells you that the hill felt harder to them. Not that they went faster, not that they went harder. It just felt harder to them. Mm. So this is why whenever athletes tell me, oh, look at my my race here. Look how well I did. Here's my normalized power. I always go back to them and say, you didn't tell me anything. I have no idea how how fast or hard you were going in that race. I need your average power. Like, I I know how hard it felt for you, but I get that from heart rate. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. Power has to be converted to normalized power because that turns it into a gauge of strain takes a measure of stress, turns it into a, an approximate of strain, how hard it was on your body. So that's the first step in figuring out your CTL. The next step is, and this is completely based on FTP, uh, you, so your, your power has to be broken up. So normalized power has to be broken up into zones. And those zones are all based on a percentage of FTP. So this goes back to Dr. Coggin's classic zones.
0: Then, and have I lost you yet here? I'm following, but I'm looking at, I'm looking at notes. I hope people out there that are also listening are t- either taking notes or... or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they might have to listen to this multiple times because it, it just, you know, you see those three simple letters, CTL, oh, how hard could it be? It's, it's really complicated.
1: So, the next thing that we have to get at is TSS, which is your training stress score uh, for each of your rides. So, the way training stress score is determined is again, your normalized power over the course of the ride is broken into zones and then it's weighted. It looks at the amount of time you spent in zone one and weights it pretty lightly, looks at zone two, weights it a little more heavily, time in zone three starts to get weighted pretty heavily. And when you start getting over threshold, uh, then you really got to get a lot of weighting. So if you spend just a little time up in like zone five or six, you're going to accumulate a lot of of training stress. If you spend a fair amount of time in zone one, you're actually going to accumulate very little training stress. And then all that is added together at the end of the ride. And there is no, so like, when you talk about power, power is measured in watts. When you talk about heart rate, heart rates in beats per minute. There is no what is the the, the metric for TSS. It's just a number. But the way it works out is if you spent an hour at FTP, you would accumulate a hundred TSS.
0: Yeah, there are no units right. associated with it. It's just a number. Exactly
1: based on time spent in each zones uh, using the normalized power, and then they're weighted to give you a, a training stress score for the ride. What is really important, and we've talked about this before, and we'll get to this when we talk about the bad of CTL, training stress says nothing about how that score is generated. So you can do a really slow ride for four hours and generate, say, 150, 200 TSS, you can go out and do a killer interval workout for an hour, hour and a half, and also accumulate upwards of 150 TSS. So you're going to get the same training stress score, but the rides are going to be very, very different, targeting very, very different systems. And training stress says nothing about that. As a matter of fact, uh, we, we've got a good quote from a previous episode. From one of our, our first episodes, this is episode 19, we have a good quote from Larry Warbus talking about that issue with TSS. So let's hear that now.
4: TSS is how hard the day was. And I know like the exact definition is like, 100 TSS equals one hour at threshold. I guess TSS is the one that I would pay most attention to of all those. TSS to me seems almost like the most accurate way to quantify the training. But then again, and I don't know the exact details of this, but I've heard there are some arguments to say like, TSS isn't necessarily the be-all end-all because you can go do a two-hour ride that's super intense and get like 200 TSS or something say whereas like you can go do a six-hour ride where you're just riding and you'll have like 120 TSS and like those have totally different effects on the body and just because you did two hours all out doesn't necessarily mean it was harder than riding six hours but, but I, I definitely think it's a pretty good, pretty good indicator and a good thing to, to follow.:
1: And this is something I've seen, and I've talked to other coaches who have seen this as well, that anytime an athlete gets into CTL hunting, so we have all these different things you can hunt, strap, or hunt <laughs> all these different But uh, there's certainly CTL hunting of, oh, the higher I get my CTL, the, the faster and stronger I'm going to be. What I have seen is there's actually an optimal range for each athlete. For some, it's higher. For some, it's lower. But as you learn your athletes, you, you'll very quickly discover with one athlete, uh, if he or she gets over 120, they're in trouble. Where you have another athlete, and if they're not over 120, they're just not fit yet. Everybody's a, a little bit different. So it's an important thing to know about them each individual.
5: Yeah, and I'd mention that it's the same for training stress balance, which is the form. You know, you, we see veteran Tour de France athletes that they can handle the third week of the tour because they've built up those years of resilience and, and stamina, and they they can be in a negative state in the third week of negative 80 or whatever it might be training stress balance. Whereas, you know, a rookie first Grand Tour rider hitting those numbers will, can literally crack them for the rest of the of, of the year yeah it is a very unique picture for
0: each individual all right so now we've got an explanation of tss where's the uh connection to ctl here how do we get from one to the other
1: so ctl and again you're now going to be surprised how simple this is uh after we talked about all that complexity ctl is just a weighted average of your tss over the last 42 days so again it's trying to get at adaptation so we're trying to take straight uh, stress turn it into strain we're trying to make this internal and it generally takes about six weeks to see an adaptation to any sort of training so that's 42 days uh so ctl looks at the last 42 days and it does weight uh, more recent days more heavily than than days forty you know forty two days ago forty one days ago forty days ago. Uh, so it is a, a weighted averaging. But basically, if your CTL is a hundred, essentially what that's saying is you've been averaging about a hundred TSS every day for the last forty two days. So that's it. Mm. Uh, that that's all all CTL is.
0: <laughs> that's all CTL is. It only took you 15 minutes to explain that.
1: Yeah. Well, once you get to the, all that other stuff is complicated. The, the CTL is actually yeah. surprisingly simple how that's figured
0: out. Sure. Now is the specific formula uh, as to how it is weighted, is that publicly available or did they keep that uh, a secret?
1: I have never seen it, uh, I've read the articles on Training Peaks. I, I've read set of, some of the Hunter's and Dr. Coggin's stuff. It's quite possible I was distracted when I got to that part of the book or the article. Uh, but I have never personally seen exactly how it's weighted.
0: Aha, see? I googled it before I asked that question just to put you on the spot and test you. Um, on the Training Peaks website, I did find a formula. It, it's not as maybe specific as I was referring to in in my question. But here it is. CTL today equals CTL yesterday plus parentheses TSS today minus CTL yesterday multiplied by 1 over CTL time constant. So if you know what all of that means, you've been listening, and uh, you know something a bit about math.
1: There we go. That was exciting. That's probably why I haven't dived too deeply.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All that said, you know, all that formula, you don't need to know the formula. Um, It's very helpful to know how this metric is constructed. It is, you know, again, as they say, I think dimensionless, it doesn't have units, etc. All that's somewhat relevant, but not the most important thing to know about it. It's just we needed to set the stage with the definition. I think now what we need to do, um, if you're ready for it, Trevor, is to get into the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is the meat of the the discussion here.
1: The one other thing to point out, we covered this pretty heavily in a past episode, so I'm not going to dive deep into it, but CTL is one of the three graphs, um, what's called your performance management chart, which you can find in most software. And all of these are what are called impulse response models. And that just simply means there's a, a stress or a strain. So there, there's your impulse, and then you're trying to see how the body responds. There's your response. But like I said, we cover that in more details. So we won't go into that in this episode. And yeah, let's dive into the good.
0: Yeah, let's start there. What does CTL do a good job of, of estimating, in your opinion, or in others' opinions out there?
1: So this is actually where I was going to bring in that quote from Tim that we already heard, and I think he gave the best summary possible, which is, this shouldn't be used as a metric of yourself. It is great for coaching and training because you can see how the body is responding. And as a coach, you can, or as an athlete who knows how to read all this data, you can make choices about your training. And that's where CTL is really good. You can look at the, you know, it's chronic. So again, you don't want to use CTL to make day to day variations. Uh, you want to look at it over time. And in the base season, you want to see that CTL going up, you want to see it rising at a, a good, steady rate. Uh, when you get into the season and you're looking to peak for a race, you want to bring that CTL down a bit. You don't want to be building big CTL right before a target race because you're going to be fatigued. So that's where it can be really useful as a guide for your training. And I thought Tim summarized that really well. Uh, I will throw... So this is another study that talks about this this concepts of training loads. So this one is... Uh, a 2014 study by Dr. Hobson, and it's called Monitoring Training Load to Understand Fatigue in Athletes. And they had a a great section where they talked about uh, the value of monitoring training load, and they had uh, four, so I'm just gonna read these. One, monitoring load can provide a scientific explanations for changes in performance. So again, that's the helping you to make choices can aid in enhancing the clarity and confidence regarding possible reasons for change in performance. Same sort of thing. Minimizing the, so three, minimizing the degree of uncertainty associated with the changes. And four, load monitoring is also implemented to try to reduce the risk of injury, illness, and non-functional overreaching. So that goes right back to everything that Tim was saying. This is about making choices. Notice this study did not say five. The benefit of training load is seeing how strong you are.
0: Yeah, none of that.
1: It could be very valuable. Another thing that where it can help, and again, let's throw in another uh, clip from Tim here. Well, I'm not going to say CTL shows how strong you are. There is, a, you know, there is a correlation between performance and how hard you train, how much training you do, unfortunately. I tell athletes this all the time. If you only have six to eight hours a week, we can get you quite strong, but we can't get you up to tour level. If you want to be a, a Tour de France level cyclist, you've got to train 25, 30 hours a week. There's no way around that. Your load has to be bigger. So there are ranges of CTL that you want to target to be able to perform at the level that you want to perform at. So if you're a Cat 1 rider, you need to be at a higher CTL. If you're a Cat 4 or 5 rider, you can be at a much lower CTL and be competitive. And Tim does a good job of explaining those, uh,
0: those ranges. All right, let's check that out now.
3: Most of my focus is on the CTL progression. How are they accumulating over time? Specifically, I have a system of kind of plateau and overload. You could, you know, people look at periodization of um, these numbers. You could put that idea into periodization. I think when we're looking at CTL growing, there's only so long you can grow CTL. You can keep accumulating training load and expect improved performance out of an athlete. And there's only so long you can sit at a CTL plateau and expect an athlete to hold a level of performance. So I think when you start thinking about this idea of training stress score, of scoring these in some external training load process, it really is about understanding the progression of that training load. That's the science that's giving me ability to make better decisions, but I have to color in the content underneath that, how we're gaining it. That is an art form. I mean, I have some specific techniques. I I bet Trevor has some specific techniques to that. For me, you know, when I'm thinking about it, uh, I guess like, so CTL is not a prescription, you know, and and people need to really wrap their heads around that. You can put out some generalized numbers and I can give you some, right? An athlete, once they get in the, I don't know, 70 to 80 range, 10 to to be getting and assuming the training content is good, not perfect, doesn't have to be perfect, but good. They're probably going to have a performance improvement in that range. They'll have another one in the, I don't know, 100 to 120 range of CTL. It really depends on the content and what they're doing. And then for the elite athlete, you might see another around 140, 145 and above. So you could put some generalized thinking to that. But that's not a prescription. That doesn't mean, let me just put an athlete on the bike, gain to those levels, just ride, don't worry about what you're doing, just gather TSS and you're gonna be great. That's just some kind of numbers to shoot for. For me, it really is about building a purposeful training strategy, understanding the ability of the rider and the demands of the event, building content based off that, right? So first you build the workouts, then you understand the weeks, then you understand the, the, the months, the four-week cycles, the three-week cycles, whatever you're using. Then once you get a good grip of all that, then for me, what I do in planning, then I backfill in TSS. And then I'll tweak that plan to make sure that the training load is plateaued or uh, overloading in the time that I want them to work in.
0: In terms of those ranges, Trevor, um, is it always the case that the ranges, for instance, as a Cat 1 rider, you have to have your CTL of a certain range just to um, give the body the load it needs to be at that certain level. Is that always the case? I guess what I'm getting at is I I feel like certain athletes – when they get of a certain age, they don't have to train as much to stay at the level they were previously at. Do I, is, that, is that the case in your experience as well, or do I have that wrong?
1: I do think there is something to that. And I also think there is an individuality to CTL. So you can have two athletes that are, say, a cat one cyclist, so quite high level, And one might perform extremely well at 120, 130 CTL. The other one might need to stay closer to 100. And going above that beats them up. I'm having a bit of an experience with that myself. Uh, As you know, I was trying to get back to older levels this year uh, when I was training full time. And at my best, my CTL, I always had a high CTL. I was up 140, 150 and had no problems managing that. I tried to get myself this spring up around 120 and was finding particularly with with work hours that was too much and had brought it down and in performing much much better.
0: Yeah, interesting. So there's an evolution to this. It's not you you shouldn't necessarily um expect the CTLU put out in a previous year to be the one you need to, to hit or surpass in a subsequent year to perform better. It just doesn't work that way. You have to put it in context of life, just like so many things we talk about.
1: Well, you know, so here's where we're getting into the bad. Remember, CTL says nothing because it's based on TSS and TSS says nothing about how that training stress, how that load was produced. Uh, neither does CTL. So if you change how you train, if you change the type of work you're doing, that means that that could impact your CTL. And if, let's say, last year you trained one way and this year you trained another way, you could have dramatically different CTLs. You might be 20 CTL points lower this year, but if you're training more effectively, you might be a stronger, better cyclist. So, the only way you can compare it season to season again, this is getting into one of the bads is if you train the same way season to season. if you make changes to how you train, that will impact your c t l
0: right and and obviously, the same is true if you could have the same c t l from season to season, but one year you did all intervals and nothing else and the other you did something uh more uh, you know. base training all year, but you somehow ended up with the same numbers. And clearly one produces a lot more stress on the body than the other in the traditional sense of the word. And you you could be a drastically different athlete. One, maybe you're, yeah, it just, do I have that right? Is that also the case? Yeah. Okay.
1: So that was somewhat of the case that I was dealing with. So back when I was training more full-time, and keeping my CTL up in that 140 range. I was also doing over 20 hours a week. So I wasn't doing that much intensity. I was doing a lot of low-intensity, high-volume work. This year in the spring, when I was trying to keep that CTL high, I only had the time to train 13, 14 hours a week. And I fell into that trap, and I'm embarrassed by this. Um, I started adding more intensity. I started adding more sweet spot work to get that TSS up so I could get that CTL up. And that was a big mistake because I was changing the nature of how I was training to target a number. And now we're getting into the ugly and we're going to talk a lot about that a little later in the show.
0: Yeah. Another question in this, uh, this might lead us into the, the the realm of the bad as well, but I it's it's on my mind. I got to ask how much of a difference does, you know, you're talking about back uh, several years now um, when you were putting out uh, numbers in the 140 150 range, and now you're putting out different numbers. And and um, how much of equipment and the accuracy of the measuring devices and the estimates of you know FTP and all of that play a role in how drastically different that CTL ends up being from year to year, season to season, especially over the the, the range of a, a decade or so.
1: Well so now we're getting into the the my point number one in the bad. So let's let's actually jump over there. One of the issues with CTL is is a metric built on a metric built on a metric. CTL is built on TSS. TSS is built on normalized power. Normalized power is built on um, uh, a formula for converting power, which you have to uh, make that assumption that, yes, that, that formula, I trust it. And all of this relies on FTP. So if you want to do something really fun, go into Training Peaks, but you can do this with most software, particularly go into WKO change your FTP and see what happens to your your CTL. So if I dropped my FTP 50 watts for this season, my CTL is gonna skyrocket. Uh, I'm gonna be back up to the CTL I used to be at. Of course, that's not realistic. It's I, I don't have an accurate FTP in there. So one of the things that's really important here is you have to maintain your FTP. You have to make sure it's constantly accurate. If not, your CTL is going to be accurate or inaccurate.
0: And by maintain the FTP, you don't mean maintain it at a certain wattage. You mean maintain no. it in, in terms of testing, making sure it's accurate, making sure it is the number that is is truly your FTP.
1: Your FTP, you know, it doesn't change. Well, it does actually change day to day. But overall, it's going to stay at about a similar level for a certain length of time it does adapt so every you know basically you can see a change in your ftp in about a 3 to 6 week period so i would say every 3 weeks you need to be going and making sure that 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 ftp number and whatever software you're using is accurate now some of that software is uh, for example wko uh It has what's called the MFTP, which uh, gives you an estimate of your FTP, and it's constantly adjusting, so you can use that. Uh, I know some of the cycling computers will tell you when it detects a change in your FTP, but you have to go really hard for it to detect that. So there are ways where you can get alerted to know that there's been a change in your FTP. But in order for CTL to be accurate, your FTP has to be maintained in the software. It has to be updated regularly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So that's, that's number one in terms of, of the bad of CTL. All
0: right. What's number two? <laughs> that's a, that's a big one. I mean, that, that, uh, assumption upon assumption upon assumption, there's a lot that could go wrong there.
1: So before we actually jump to the next issue, I just brought up the fact that, uh, FTP can actually change day to day. And we've been talking about the individuality. So this would actually be a good time. We have a a really good quote from Dr. Seiler, where he actually brings up uh, TSS. I think he also brings up CTL, but talks about the arbitrary nature of them and talks about how not only can these things change day to day, but one of his big issues is that the TSS you're generating, say at the start of a four hour ride at a particular wattage is really different from what you're generating at the end of a four hour ride when you're really tired.
5: All right, let's hear Dr. Seiler now. I never look at TSS. Of course I'm not on, I mean, I, my workouts go into training peaks, but I don't really use it. uh, I have to be honest, but, um, TSS, what's it stand for? training stress score. But what's it measuring? It's measuring some manifestation of external load. power relative to you know, so power to relative to an FTP times minutes and implicit in the TSS score is that every minute is the same. The hundred and eightieth minute, is the same as the 30th minute at that low intensity you were riding at. And the reality is that you and I know that's not true. That the 180th or 240th minute at 65% of heart rate max feels different than the 30th. But they are the exact same score in the algorithm, as far as I can tell, as long as the intensity is the same. Yep. So, there's issues here that, you know, what <laughs> what's the difference between load and stress? And that for that reason, I just, I don't get caught up in TSS because I'm interested in what my body's telling me about my stress. <laughs> you know, what was the stress of this session? I don't need a number that is inherently it's not fully arbitrary, but it's, it's fairly arbitrary. It's, you know, it's because there is, there are differences, even the same, even the same three hour workout, me yesterday versus me three days later can be very different stresses depending on what my status is. I may even have a virus in my body. I don't know about yet. Does that, you know what I'm saying? There's so many things that are influencing the translation from Load to stress.
1: I had that experience this weekend. I'm coming off of a really nasty virus. So on Saturday, I did my first long ride in weeks. I'm, I'm still not 100%. So I was keeping it slow. Uh, my TSS, total TSS for that ride, looks like a recovery ride. But I can tell you at the end of that ride, I was looking at my map, seeing that my car was three kilometers away, and going, I'm not sure I'm going to.
5: <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> I, anyway, so hey, <laughs> and I, I, no hats off to Training Peaks. I mean, you know, they've got this tool that people love, and they love it so much they almost become religiously addicted to it. Um, but it's worthwhile to have a little bit of reflection about the. The arbitrary nature of it—it it is basically we're playing with math, and the body is not perfectly algebraic in the way that it works. So I would just give people a little bit of caution in, in how rigidly they interpret and lean on these numbers. Uh, I think that is what what I find interesting is that when you talk to the high performance people they are much less connected to those numbers than the age groupers as a rule. In North
0: America, the road racing season is winding down and cyclists are starting to think about their coaching and training for next year. Now is a perfect time for a late season inside test from Talk Laboratories. You can think of it as your final exam on your training approach for the year. Did your training go well this year? Did you set a new high bar to beat next year? Our inside advanced test can tell you. It's an objective view of your fitness and your energy systems after riding all season. Get your inside results from Fast Talk Labs today, and you'll have a new fitness level to beat as your goal for next season. See more at FastTalkLabs.com solutions. Alright, Trevor, what is the second point that you'd like to make under the, the realm of the bad here when it comes to CTL?
1: So I've already addressed the fact that it doesn't say anything about how the stress is produced or the strain. So that's important. And that's gonna we're gonna come back to that later in the ugly. The next thing is what uh Dr. Seiler hinted at, and this was actually uh uh, I saw this brought up in one of the studies, and I didn't make a note of which study. I apologize about that, but we'll put all the references on the on the website. Is that these models? So the these impulse response models, uh, they're all linear, but physiology is not linear. So again, you heard Dr. Seiler talk about that—that that the the strain. After four hours is very different from the strain at the beginning of four hours. Uh, these, and we talked about the day to day variability, our, our bodies aren't that linear. They just don't work that way. And these models don't account for that. So, again, that builds a little inaccuracy into these, which is why they can be very helpful looking at them in the long run for trends. But in the short run, you're going to see a lot of that inaccuracy, and and you have to be careful. And you have to be particularly careful, again, about the, and this is what ultimately happens with the bad, looking at this number and saying, I'm at 110 CTL, therefore I'm at the strongest I've ever been. Doesn't work that way. There's too much inaccuracy. There's too much of metrics being built on metrics being built on metrics. You just can't look at it that way. Now, the one thing I do want to know is the two numbers people love to use to to show how strong they are, CTL and FTP. If you drop your FTP, your CTL goes up. If you raise your FTP, your CTL goes down. So which one are people going to prioritize? Do you want the higher FTP with the lower CTL or do you want the higher CTL with the the lower FTP?
0: You're asking the wrong guy, Trevor. I don't know. We We should do a poll Ask our, ask our listeners, but hopefully neither they'll say they'll hopefully they'll have learned from, uh, from listening to us over the years that, uh, they shouldn't, they should not put so much stock in either of those numbers being high. They should just train the way they should train and leave it at that.
1: They are valuable metrics to use for training. They are not. And so this is the bad that we're trying to, to hopefully convince, um, they are not a measure of how strong an athlete you are. That's not how they should be used. That's not why they should be used. If you care about how you measure up, the way to find out how you measure up is performance. Go do a race. Then you'll find out how you measure up, and the number's not going to tell you.
0: And this gets into part of the um, the other aspect of the bad here, which has nothing to do with um, performance either, which is the flip side of training and that's recovery and if you're so focused on keeping your ctl high then you might overdo things
1: right and now you're getting into the ugly so there there's two sides of the ugly and you just hit one absolutely spot on uh which is really important uh the other one and let me just there's one last thing in the bad Uh, that will lead to the other aspect of, of the ugly. And I'm going to quickly reference another study, which we've talked about before, which is aerobic fitness and amplitude of exercise intensity domains during cycling. This was a 2012 study that we talked about before, which really showed that most of the adaptations you see both in cyclists and runners are in the, the lower end, so when we talk about Dr. Seiler's three-zone model, so zone one being that below aerobic threshold, uh, zone two being between your thresholds, and zone three being above your anaerobic threshold, most of the adaptations that you see are down in that zone one range. You push it up, which raises everything above it. The issue here is that if you look at the weighting, Doing a lo- riding in that zone one generates very little TSS, which isn't really going to push your CTL up unless you do a whole lot of time. It, I have experienced this. I really TSS and CTL weren't a thing back when I was training full time, and thankfully I never looked at them back then. Now I go up for an easy base mile ride. You you get in four or five hours. You look at your TSS and your your heart just sinks. You go really? That's it.
0: It's it's so funny to me the psychology of these numbers because people want to accumulate them in some way, and a CTL even more so. It's it feels like people are accumulating it like they are mileage or just volume. FTP's is a little different. So yeah, the psychology of going out there and looking at a number afterwards and being slightly disappointed, I think I, I get it because we're competitive people and we, we want that. We want to see progress. We want to accumulate and we're, uh, equating this number with that. And maybe in our mind, we're stretching it all the way to this equals success, or this is a successful workout if this is bigger, um, and that's just fascinating to me uh, because it's it just doesn't work that way i guess that's wh- I guess that's why I find it fascinating is it's it you know that you know that you know that very well you're you're ha- hosting this this podcast on this very subject to people to correct people 's thinking about this, but you are also fall victim to it as well it, to some degree
1: that's what kills me I know this when i 'm doing my rides now i i, I haven't fully removed TSS from my screen. I used to have it on like four different screens on my Garmin. I've got it down to one screen. And I still all the time see myself wanting to look at where my TSS is going and going, you know, you shouldn't do that. Stop looking. It's like an addiction.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: You you want to see how hard this is. And, And at my worst, particularly in the spring... Yeah, I'd look at my TSS for the ride and then do the calculation on my head. Is my CTL going up? Is my CTL going down? And it's a bad place to be. And, and I, as you pointed out, I am fully aware of it and still find it really hard not to fall into that trap. So another person I want to bring in here is Sam Milan, who has been on the show many times, and he is all about the physiology, not about the, the numbers, in terms of using the numbers to to say what you are as a cyclist, uh, he loves the numbers in terms of saying how to direct your training, and I think we have a really good quote from him talking about if you focus too much on training stress and not recovery, that's going to push you into overtraining.
0: All right, let's hear from Dr. Sam Milan.
6: Yeah, I, and this is a big deal of overtraining, right? Um and because because c- many times, you know, many people who compete in, in, in category ones, twos, threes, or masters, right? They're people who are not professionals. So normally they're 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 either working or studying, right? So they have other things, right? So they, they are at a higher risk of getting overtrained. Uh, because they don't have much time to rest or much time to have a very good dedicated nutrition as part of the recovery, and intuitively also many times that the, they 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 think that they oh I I, I miss uh, some some high intensity pace right so they 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 do more also they don't do uh, monitoring uh, we do a lot of blood analysis where you can see different biomarkers of muscle damage of. Uh, decreasing hemoglobin which is going to affect your oxygen carrying capacity and therefore it's going to affect your performance and many times this is very 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 typical in these athletes you know you do you know they 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 show up to races and uh they've been doing a very a lot of high intensity training or combined also with high volume days and uh then they, they, they then they show up in in the peak of the of the season and they're not doing well and they blow up and they think oh man I I need competition pace I cannot I cannot produce more watts I, I used to, my my FTP for example was three fifty and now it's three three hundred I have lost fifty watts I think that I need to do higher intensity because it's it's the summer right what is the other way around in these people which is part of the monitoring right that is very important and that's where you do blood analysis and you see that this athlete is completely overtrained and has deteriorated. Significantly, Um, there's like a study published recently showing that non-supervised high intensity leading to overtraining damages the mitochondrial function, for example. So it's not just at the muscle level that you cause muscle damage, but also mitochondrial uh, function, structural changes, and um, low-grade inflammation, hormonal changes, and this is what, what leads to a lot of people to overtraining. It's very very typical in. In, in, these athletes, um, especially in, in Colorado, I mean, the Boulder area, right. Where there are <laughs> a lot of extremists, right. For like, you know, like extreme, uh, training and extreme diets, which mm-hmm. is a perfect storm.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have to save the questions about why people get into that mentality, uh, for, a, another episode with a, a psychologist. So, should we get back to the, the the list here of the bad and the ugly?
1: Right. So yeah, now we're getting into the ugly, and there's two sides to the ugly, and, and let's dive into both. But in short, one is exactly what you brought up, which is the issue with recovery. And the other one is what I was bringing up, which is to get that CTL, people start changing their training and moving away from the training that we know is beneficial uh, and uh, doing the training that produces that big TSS. So where do, why don't we start with recovery, and uh, it, we're going back again. Here's uh, a Dr. Paul Gaston, who we had on episode 45, talking about that balance between training stress and recovery and the danger of putting too much stock in stress and avoiding recovery as a result. Perfect. Let's hear that now.
2: Well, the objective, obviously, is to is to approve and adapt. So we need to get our training loads right, and that's not always an easy thing to do. We know that too little load is um, not appropriate, either for, for performance or we also, you know, it, for injury, we also know that too great a load results in underperformance, and you start to get symptoms of illness, under recovery, and often injury as well. So, what we're really looking for is this sweet spot within our training. We need uh, a variety in our training. We need to be quite cyclical in how we do it. Um, sometimes I think, particularly in endurance sports, athletes the the goal becomes almost um, training becomes the goal and it's about how many kilometres and how far I've gone, whereas what we're really looking for is adaptation and ultimately improved performance. So it's working towards that and knowing when to be able to back off, knowing when to push hard. You're know, you not going to adapt unless you do train hard, but training hard the whole time is going to result in stagnation, underperformance and probably illness and injury.
1: Agreed. One of one of the things I always tell the athletes that I coach is be as intense in your recovery as you are in your training. If you train that much harder, you got to make sure your recovery is that much better.
2: Yeah, most most definitely. Um, You know, Michael Kalman, who's done a lot of work in the subjective areas of self reports, he's got a really nice model of. I think he calls it the scissor model, but it's uh, it's the balance between you're able to continue to increase your load if you're able to continue to increase your recovery and maintain that that balance as soon as it gets out of balance then that's when you're likely to struggle it, that's going to be very different for different individuals you know the your training history the age of the athlete the modalities of, of um exercise that you're doing there's a whole host of, of things that will actually influence that
0: I think this is one of those scary things for athletes. They they do what they're supposed to do in terms of a training load. Maybe a, maybe they've done a training camp. They know that they're supposed to do a recovery of some kind after that. Maybe it's three days. Maybe it's an entire week, and they're taking it easy, and they're doing what they should be doing. But they see that CTL number go way down, and they think to themselves, well, what did I just do that training camp for if I'm just going to lose everything I just gained by taking the recovery? And that is the wrong mentality. Do I have that right, Trevor?
1: Absolutely. And the real danger here is it is amazing how quickly your CTL tanks when you take some recovery. If you take, the, say, a week off the bike to recover or you're traveling with your family, CTL can drop 20, 25 points, which... For a lot of athletes, the difference between their base and their highest point in the season is, is maybe 40 CTL points. So they're just looking at their training tank.
0: Mm, like which they, is went no. back to, they went back to the drawing board. They went back to square one. Right.
1: And that's not how it works. It's not how it works with your body at all. and And I have done this with athletes again and again and again where they take a week off and they're really worried because their CTL is is going down. Then you get them back on the bike and you know they have a day or two that they're rusty and have to get the legs working again. But then they go out for a hard ride and discover my power is higher than it was before that recovery because what happens during that recovery, remember this is the fundamental principle of training. You do damage to your body, there's the strain And then your body repairs and adapts in recovery. And this is the ugly. If you are really worried about that CTL number and you're not willing to let it come down, you never give your body that chance to repair and adapt. So you have that really high CTL number. But ironically, what I see with athletes that focus on that is they kind of plateau and they get stale because they're never fully recovered, they never truly adapt and they never get as strong as they want to be even though they have that high CTL. And that's ugly number 1.
0: Yeah, the 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 second part of the um the ugliness that can be had with CTL if used incorrectly has to do with the just that notion of wanting to constantly feed the beast, feed the number, see those numbers uh Going up or eh, 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 to the to the um, detriment of training principles that people know,
1: right. So ugly number two is what you're referring to, which is the training to raise CTL as opposed to training for what's effective. And I am seeing coaches that are doing this now too, that are figuring out the types of rides that really ramp up that CTL number. And and I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. You know I'm a big believer in the polarized model. But if you want that big CTL number, sweet spot is the way to go. Because you go out and do a six-hour ride in zone two, so below that aerobic threshold, your CTL might only be 200 or your, your t- training stress might only be 200. If you go out and do a five-hour ride at sweet spot, and remember, that doesn't necessarily have to be that much higher, but you're just above that aerobic threshold, that ride can be double. It can be a 400 TSS ride, and that's going to jack the CTL up. So what I see in athletes that are really trying to get that CTL up is they'll start doing more and more of that in-between riding. Let's do more and more sweet spot because I can really accumulate those numbers. They never do the easy rides. They do some intensity, but they're usually pretty tired all the time, so they have a hard time doing really high-quality intensity and just end up up in that in-between place, but, boy, do they have a high CTL.
0: Yeah, they're just chasing a number instead of following some of the fundamental principles and, you know, you, you fell into this trap this spring, as you already mentioned, you, you couldn't train the number of hours you used to. So you ended up incorporating harder rides to the detriment of your overall training, just because you wanted to see that number go up.
1: Yeah. uh, I got to own that. I don't like owning that, but I got to own that. Sorry to, sorry to do that to you. Uh, No, it's fine. I deserve it. What's the the practice what you preach? I was not practicing what I preach. And I I have adjusted, and my training is going much, much better. Uh, But yeah, I did fall into the the trap a little bit. It was little things. Like I'd go out for my long rides and let myself get up over that aerobic threshold because, boy, was the TSS going up. But I will say this right now because this is the question we get from a lot of people. If you are doing polarized training, Uh, and you're not doing 20, 25 hours a week, your CTL isn't going to get that high. But the thing I want to reassure you, and we're going to kind of close out this episode with a couple examples, is that doesn't matter. If you are training right, if you are following the principles of training, CTL doesn't say how strong you are. It's the training right that says how strong you are. And I'm going to give you examples of people where CTL came way down and they were at a higher level, not a lower level. So to all of you listening to us who are interested in this polarized training model, but are concerned because you're seeing that CTL not as high as you're used to, that's completely fine.
0: Yeah, the, the, the end result of the ugliness that we're talking about is that you, you kind of chase the number, you do things that you wouldn't otherwise do because you're focused so much on that number. Um, you ride a little bit harder, a little bit more often, you maybe do more intervals than you know you should, um, and you either plateau, like Trevor has already mentioned, or you get to this place where you're actually kind of walking a fine line between you know, overreaching overtraining some of these more dangerous areas because you're so focused on a number and you've got the blinders on to all the other uh, more important things that uh, a a, a sound training regimen would have you do.
1: Right. So uh, I think that's a good summary and I'll just give the, the even shorter summary, which is effective training is applying the principles and balancing strain with recovery. That's how you want to train and the CTL is going to be what the CTL is going to be and don't worry about it. Ineffective training is targeting that CTL and doing it by focusing on the rides that bump up CTL and avoiding recovery because recovery will will tank that score. And now I think I want to finish out the ugly with actually a clip from Joe Friel, this is from actually episode 82, where he talked about the last chapter in his book, where he made the point that adaptation and recovery are not the same thing, because my guess is some of the people listening to this right now are thinking, oh, well, the, the way I can do recovery is a whole lot of foam rolling and a whole lot of stretching, and then I can keep training hard, and I don't have to take that week off and take my CTL and i feel that was something joe friel was was arguing against saying no uh you need that time to adapt foam rolling and all that sort of stuff isn't going to it might speed up recovery if you're at a stage race and you, you need to perform the next day it's great for speeding up having your legs feeling good for the next day but adaptation takes us the the length of time it's going to take and to get that true to adaptation you need to back down. No other way around it. You need to take that time. So let's let's hear from
7: Joe. Late in the book, I talk about, I actually kind of throw in a, a curveball there based on what I, we just, I just talked about, and that was the discussion about recovery versus adaptation in that uh, they're not the same thing, and that sometimes it's better for an athlete to be very open-ended about their about the recovery process, which now being taken to mean to include adaptation. And sometimes plans don't do that. Sometimes athletes don't know how they're going to feel when they get to a certain point in the season. They, just have, they haven't experienced what they're planning to do. And when they get there, they discover the load is much greater than they thought it was going to be. Now what do they do? Do they continue on? Do they press ahead with the same plan? Or do they make changes to it because of what they're experiencing? And my point in, this, in that later chapter where I talk about recovery and adaptation is that the most important thing is adaptation. It's not recovery. The most important thing is adaptation. That, that's the reason why we train is to adapt. If you didn't adapt, what the hell would be the reason for going out there and doing workouts? And, and to, to, express, to explain that, for example, uh, uh, the difference between a recovery and adaptation, there's lots of research showing that hot and cold alternating inversions or baths speed up recovery. There's not a single research study that shows that it speeds up adaptation. So right. you may feel like you're recovered because you've done certain things. You've used, you've got a massage or you've done all these things that we, we all know about, but that doesn't mean you're adapted. Your body, we don't know right now, we don't know of any way to speed up the adaptive process. It's a biological phenomenon, which, which is really beyond what we know about sports science right now. But it's at the heart of what we're talking about here. And so the issue is that you've got to be able to differentiate these two terms, recovery and adaptation, and not be focused just on recovery, but also realize you've got to give your body a chance to to adapt. And so what does that mean? Well, that means especially sleep, um, which is when hormones kick in and, and the body actually goes through the process of becoming stronger, if you will. And so even though I've talked about having a plan, I'm now toward the end of the book talking about how you've got to be ready to deviate from that plan because of the need to, um, to adapt as opposed to simply recover. So I tried, to, you know, I tried to sneak that in toward the end because I wanted the athlete, the reader to understand that all these other things are important, but this now becomes one of the most important things you have to also give consideration to how are you adapting.
0: Now, why don't we dive into a couple examples that really uh, highlight, illustrate the good, the bad, the ugly about CTL. There's a companion video workshop on our website that uh, you, can, you can watch to, to see the data. Um, but uh, Trevor, in words, take us through these two examples of the, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly of CTL.
1: Yeah, so I got to give you two examples of athletes I work with. One, both are in their fifties. One is very recreational. Uh, he loves to do a Saturday morning group ride. He loves to get out with his buddies, but he's he's never had a race license. He's never done an official race. The other one is an elite cyclist. Uh, you know, somebody who I think is capable of of winning nationals. So he's he's very high level. Uh, so I just got to give you the contrast of, of both but show you some surprising things in terms of the CTL and this first athlete he's 55 he was the one that i started this episode using as an example where all of his buddies were like oh my god what's your CTL you're you're riding so strong uh so he has this ride north uh, from Toronto to this cottage country north of Toronto called Muskoka that he does with his buddies every year and when he first hired me, you know, that that was one of his big goals. He's like, I go on this ride, I, I'm at the back hanging on for dear life. I usually get popped and they wait for me. And I just want to be able to hang on at this ride. So this year we set that ride as a as a big target. It happened at the end of July. And you can't see these visuals. So I'll give you the, the summary, but we did a lot of base training. We got his, his CTL up pretty high. We did a big training camp in March, and he really—he had almost never been above 80 CTL, and we were getting close to 90, so we did a little extra with the camp so he could see that 90. It was probably not smart on my part, but he he enjoyed it, so we did it. Uh, And then through the spring, we kept him right around 80. That was not his strongest point. Then as we got into the summer, I would hit him with really hard training, But we'd only do that for a few weeks and then take a good rest to make sure that we weren't overcooking him, that we weren't pushing him into that overtrained state. And when he arrived at that ride with his buddies, uh, I'd like to say his CTL was right around 70, maybe 71, uh, one of his, his lower points of the season. He went on that ride, and he was killing everybody. There was one guy there who used to race... Semi-professionally, I know him. I used to race with him, Who, who's now like me, getting a little older and just riding recreationally. And basically, the two of them win at one another in, in the latter half of this ride. It was about a six-hour ride. Uh, and they were the only two that could put their face in the wind at this point. And like I said, at the end of the ride, everybody else is coming up to going, oh, my God, you're so much stronger. What happened? You know, What's your CTL? And when he told them he was down at 70, none of them would believe him. Because I think he probably had one of the lowest CTLs of anybody on that ride. But you know, quite possibly, everybody else was, was a little overtrained, maybe because they were focusing on that CTL. The other thing that was surprising to me is you look at the heart rate profile. and Well, this ride was killing everybody else. This was basically a base miles ride for him. His heart rate was mostly below aerobic threshold. So it was down in, in Siler zone one for most of the ride. So this was a really successful day, and actually, the funny thing was, after targeting this for so long and just wanting to be able to hang with these guys, he was actually so disappointed with how easy he felt the ride was. The next day, he went out, did a two-and-a-half-hour ride by himself where he averaged 250 watts just to do something hard.
0: Yeah, so having watched the video where you walk through the data, that, that, that uh, makes it even more clear that... This performance was something he was very capable of, and the point being, CTL had nothing to do, a high CTL had nothing to do with improved performance in his, in his case, in this case. Exactly.
1: So here's an even more stark example. Let's get to that uh, more competitive Masters athlete. So he did get caught up in the CTL game. And we had a a good base season. We were really raising his level. We had a big march and finished with a a large training camp. Uh, Now, if you're looking at, I'm looking at his weekly TSS right now. Basically, from beginning of March to about middle of May, he was, with only rare exceptions, putting out about 760 uh, TSS every week. And that's a relevant number because he did his calculations and discovered that he could hold about 110 ctl if he was doing that 760 tss every week Uh, and that's what he wanted so we got into a little danger because there was a big march finishing with a big training camp and then i wanted him to take a a true recovery week and he didn't now the week does look smaller but it was actually a 400 tss week i wanted like a 100 tss week and we've looked back on this um and that really set him off on the wrong foot. He fell into that trap of, I don't want my CTL to tank, so that recovery week, I'm still going to do enough work to keep it from falling too far. And he came out of that week fatigued. And then we went into a series of four weeks in a row with racing. Actually, more than that. It was four, or five or six, I think. But he just never got back on top of his training and because he was trying to hit that six, 760 TSS every week he was just constantly cooked and he's going to the race to some races. He'd perform well, some he wouldn't perform very well, but just never feeling that good on the bike. Uh, And and again, it was because he was targeting that number. And the clearest example uh, with him that I saw was there's a, so he's in Boulder and there's this uh, training race in Boulder that goes every Tuesday and Thursday. And I know this race it's a good hard race. I mean, this year, We had two guys that went to the Olympics for triathlon who were showing up to this ride, and they get on the front and drive it hard. So when I send an athlete to a training race, I don't want them to sit in and be smart. I want them to race hard. That's the place to use it for training. So I kept telling him, I want you attacking at this training race. And for a couple weeks, he'd just sit in the field and, and never attack, and kind of in his his notes say well I'll, I'll attack next week I was just getting the feel for it this week and after a few weeks of that he finally just admitted I'm not attacking cuz I can't it's you know I'm I'm basically just hanging on and you can see that in the profile uh, again we have this video online but you look at his heart rate the whole race which is about a little over an hour I think about an hour 15 he, his heart rate just sitting at threshold so that's that's all he can do is just basically be pack fodder after we realized that he was starting to cook himself and he was focusing too much on ctl in june we actually had to have several easy weeks we really had to back down then got him to do a different approach to his training where we would do two three week blocks where we'd actually make those weeks bigger so we increased the volume his his tss was actually getting up in the eight nine hundred range We were making his his hard rides really hard. Uh, But then after two, three weeks of that, we'd have a week where he would almost be off the bike, like two hours, 50, 60 TSS total for the week, which he struggled with a bit, but he was willing to do. We did kind of two blocks of that and then saw where his performance was at, and it was extraordinary. Now, first I'm going to say, because of the you know, frequently taking a week almost off the bike, his CTL tanked. So I was telling you about that training race. I, I'm looking at an example of, of one of those training races back when we were fo- he was too focused on CTL. CTL was 107, but like I said, he was just barely hanging on. So now we get to August. CTL is now down to 82. So we're talking about a 25-point drop. That's huge. Goes to the training race, and I show this in the video, but the, the powers he was putting out in this August training race were much higher. His one minute, his five minute, his 20 minute, his one hour power were all higher in this August 3rd race. But interestingly, he said, uh, I, I don't know why they're going easier now. This used to be really hard. And if you look at the first 45 minutes of the race, his heart rate never even touches threshold. So he was now sitting very comfortably in the field, even though he's putting out bigger power than he was back in May when his CTL was 107. There's this point where the the course goes up this false flat hill. It's like 3%, 2 3%. And at the end of it, there's a couple kicker climbs, and it's all into a headwind. I always love to attack there. I recommend that he attack there. But it's a real hard place to attack. you got to be really strong to stay away and he broke away held off the field for five minutes they caught him right at the top so he almost pulled it off uh remember this was a guy when his ctl was 107 was hanging on couldn't even attack now he attacked one of the biggest parts and then a little later in the race just because he felt it wasn't hard enough as they were coming into the finish he got on the front of the field and and just time trialed the field for 10 minutes Then when they hit this kicker climb right before the finish, which is where riders attack, even though he had been on the front for 10 minutes, he was second wheel over the top of that climb. This was a fundamentally different rider than the rider in the spring, but really important to point out, in the spring, his CTL was sitting around 110. Now his CTL is sitting around 82. But he's resting, he's recovering, he's letting his body adapt, that tanks the CTL but it's making him a better
0: rider. Yeah, the you can really see this in the data um when you walk through both the course, the the climbs, the power he's putting out, the heart rate, all of that is very well illustrated in the data, so check out that video on uh, fasttalklabs.com. I think it's worth going back just for a second and um you know, you've already mentioned the performance management chart, the PMC. Um, There's a lot more to that that we didn't discuss. ATL, acute training load, TSB, training stress balance. And these metrics are, there's a lot, just want to reiterate how much more there is to the PMC and that we've actually spoken about it before.
1: Yeah, I had actually thought about diving into those and how to use CTL, ATL, and uh, TSB together to get some really good information. But we've actually been going for a while here. And we have two good past episodes where we dived into that with the experts, I mean, the true experts on the subject. So I, I would say uh, for the benefit of time, if you want to learn more about the the performance management chart and all three of these graphs uh, that make up the performance management chart, check out episode 42 which is with Hunter Allen, who, along with Dr. Andy Coggan, really invented this. Uh, and then the other one would be episode 119, which is a whole episode talking about training load with Tim Cusick, who is the, uh, the, the brains behind WKO.
0: Perfect. I know that was a lot, and we started out with a, a pretty deep definition of CTL, but I think that that is... Uh, a critical component here. It's not as simple as you think. People people often will take a complex uh, metric like CTL and try to simplify it, only if only to wrap their heads around it. But uh, there's danger in that, and and hopefully we did a good job of expressing the the dangers that you can fall into if you use it the wrong way. I, I think it's worth reiterating. It's not all bad, there are some good things about this metric, and we highlighted those right up front. We wanted to do that we want We don't want to be just bashing this because um, there is some value. You can use it if you use it wisely it's 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 worth your time
1: yeah, I think that is the key message, which is it is a great training tool. This goes all the way back to Dr. Bannister in the the seventies. Uh, coming up with these sorts of models, and they're very useful, but it is a training tool. It is not a measure of performance, and and that's where you get into the bad and the ugly.
0: We've said it many times throughout the show today, don't focus on CTL. Don't worry if it drops. Uh, We're going to close with yet another quote from a great coach, Kendra Wenzel, Uh, She has much of the same message to say, so let's hear from her now.
8: Um, Well, like Ryan said, you know, if the athlete is feeling exhausted, you know, we're sort of able to define exhausted, then I would be hesitant to push through with anything, you know, unless, for instance, we have a major rest coming up a day later or something. It might be actually something where we wanted to push through. Are you negating gains again? It depends if you're going to get that recovery soon enough. You know, I guess my first thing is always with CTL is—is is all the data accurate that that's in there? You know, if I'm seeing CTL drop, I, I first still need to make sure that that all the uh, training is is actually in there and accounted for for its TSS. I don't know. I, I guess I don't, I don't panic a lot when I see drops in CTL just because of there. there's so many components that, that are going into it all together.
0: That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode, and become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join to become a part of our education and coaching community. For Tim Cusick, Larry Warbis, Joe Friel, Dr. Steven Siler, Dr. Anigo San Milan, Kendra Wenzel, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.